God, our Father in heaven, we pray that you would use your word now to establish us by your grace on the firm foundation that is Jesus Christ. No one can lay a foundation other than the one you have laid in him on which we can stand to be right with you and have eternal life and joy in your glory. So I pray, God, establish our feet uh, more resolutely, firmly on Jesus Christ. I pray you would help all of us to build further our lives on him because of what your word reveals to us in this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, If you'll open your Bible, please, to Ecclesiastes for one more Lord's Day. We'll look at the final verse of the book today. I originally planned to cover this verse as part of last week's sermon, Uh, but when I started studying verse 13, I decided that verse really needed to be a whole sermon on its own. And if ever a single verse was worthy of one whole sermon, it would be one that claimed to tell us what our whole duty before God was. And so verse 13 did. Uh, But now to finish our series in Ecclesiastes, we're left with one more single verse. But in God's good providence, this verse is also worthy of, can be worthy of, a whole sermon by itself. Because here, the Spirit helps us to begin to understand what, what is the height and the breadth and the length and the depth of the judgment of God. A day is coming, Scripture tells us. We have sung about it. We've, we've prayed in light of it. A day when we will all stand before our Creator. And you will be called to give an account of yourself to God. I mean, what thought could be weightier than that? Do you feel the weight of it? What do you need to know about that coming day that can help you live properly now in light of it? Well, you need to know and understand what this last verse of Ecclesiastes teaches. And here the Spirit teaches us three things about the coming judgment. The breadth of the judgment the depth of the judgment, and the twofold nature of the judgment. So look first at what God's Word says about the breadth of the judgment. Here's the first part of verse 14 in Ecclesiastes 12. says, God will bring every deed into judgment. Well, the judgment of God then cannot be any wider or broader in scope. Every Deed. He, he will bring before the bar of his judgment everything that is ever done by every one. Some people might wrongly think that God only cares about some of our deeds, maybe just the deeds that are clearly religious in nature as they see it, or those deeds that are just really, really bad as they see it, like, like whether or not you go to church or whether or not you steal or cheat. Now, of course, God will bring all of those deeds into judgment, but only because those things fit under this phrase in verse 14, every deed. And, of course, also under that phrase fits everything else you have ever done and will do. So ask yourself, how comprehensive or how limited do you think that your duty to God actually is? Do you know everything you do matters to Him? Do you know everything you do has great responsibility to God baked into it? Do you know God is going to bring it up in judgment? It it is an astounding phrase, a giant weight, every deed. And really, this verse protects us from misunderstanding that main thematic line in Ecclesiastes. Do you remember it? Vanity of vanities. All is vanity that's done here under the sun. Well, here's one reason that we know that does not mean all we do here is meaningless. Because this last verse indicates the complete opposite, doesn't it? Everything we do in this life is meaningful. Ecclesiastes, in the end, teaches us Not that nothing matters, but that everything matters. It matters to God. 
He's going to show everyone that everything we've done matters by bringing every deed into judgment. If you ever get to a point where you're feeling very discouraged or, or, or worse, thinking that what you're doing in life doesn't really matter, you know, have you been there? Uh, if you're thinking that part of your daily life is pointless, then you're not thinking straight about the judgment to come because it all matters to God. And so he will bring every deed into judgment. Now, the important follow-up question to that, to this understanding, everything you're doing does matter. Judgment day will prove it. You, you need to consider after that, okay, does everything you do matter to you for the same reason that it matters to God? Do your concerns match His in every deed? You know, God made you for His purposes, for His glory, to be His image, to be His child, so, so He could share with you His own blessedness and His own joy by bringing you into fellowship with Himself and with His Son by His Spirit. That, that's what humans were made for. And so you are not your own. And then after He made you, He sustained you every moment of your life. In Him you live and move and have your being. And all you have has come from His hand. Scripture teaches you to ask, what do I have that I did not receive? Every possession, every opportunity, every relationship, every breath you have is a gift and stewardship from God. And so it is right, it is fitting for God to judge all that you do. If God did not bring every deed into judgment, do you know what that would imply? That would imply that there are some things that you have or do that basically God has nothing to do with, that are independent from Him and, and don't really have anything to do with Him. And that's not true. All things are from Him and through Him and, and to Him. And, and mankind naturally does not think that way. Because apart from God's grace remaking our minds, we are so self-absorbed in our, in our outlook and about our lives and our understandings as if we are our own. And that's why this little clause in verse 12 can be such a wrecking ball and, and reviving and refreshing that God will bring every deed into judgment. If that's going to make sense to you for, you, for you to think that's right and that's good, you have to have a radically God-centered understanding of all reality and, and all morality. Now, here's another important perspective we get from the, about the breadth of the judgment by considering this verse and the first word of it. What's the first word of verse 14? It's the word for. And that shows the logical connection of this truth to the truth of the prior verse. For tells us that verse 14 is a reason why verse 13 is true. Okay, so, so what did God say in verse 13? He said, The end of the matter... All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man, as the whole of what mankind is to be and do. Okay, well, why, why is that the case? Because for, verse 14, God will bring every deed into judgment. So here's how that logic works. If you ultimately will answer to God for everything you do, then of course you should know that your whole duty really is to fear Him and keep His commandments. In every situation, your entire responsibility and, and, and purpose can be summed up by, by just, just relate rightly to God. And everything else grows out of that. that. That leads to every other kind of good that you should do to those around you. And, and importantly, and this will come up later, 
as, as important too. Verse 13 taught us that relating rightly to God, first and foremost, is something that happens deep in your heart, fearing Him. That, that's acknowledging His worth with, with a heartfelt, trembling adoration and reverence and awe and love. And then out of, your, out of that heart, the rest of, of what that verse said is your duty, to keep His commandments found in Scripture. And that, that's it. That, that's the whole duty, the end. And you know what? When God brings every deed of yours into judgment, that's the only thing that's going to matter about them. Did you fear God and keep His commandments when you did those deeds? You know, if that's the case, you must realize this, that, that the commands of God in Scripture have bearing on every deed that you do. These verses couldn't be true if that wasn't the case. Scripture pertains and applies to all you ever do, no matter how big or small that is, no matter how consequential or inconsequential that may seem to you. It all matters to God. And so God has spoken in His Word to the matter concerning how you should go about that big or small deed, or perhaps whether or not you should go about it at all. And that's true for every deed. And we think about this again in Ecclesiastes. So many of God's commandments in this book are about what we do with the stuff of everyday life. You have heard God say repeatedly that you are responsible to Him for how you enjoy your daily bread and your daily work and, and your family relationships and so on. And that's just one example. The Word of God has bearing on every deed of every day. And many of God's commands explicitly say this, don't they? Do you know the whatever you do commands? There was one in Ecclesiastes. Whatever you do, do with your might. Of course, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Colossians 3, 17 says, whatever you do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Now this is actually very freeing if you're thinking about it right as a Christian to live knowing that in the end, on the last day, the only thing that's going to matter about your deeds is if you feared God and, and kept His commandments when you did them. How much earthly success you had in your efforts won't matter. Only if you were faithful to God in them. How much fruit, what kind of fruit you saw as a result of your decisions, that won't be what matters. Only whether or not you feared God and were keeping His commandments when you made those decisions. What, what other people, even your loved ones, thought or said about your actions, it won't matter. Only whether or not you were fearing God and keeping His commandments when you acted. What other people did to you. What other people did better or worse than you. It won't matter as far as your standing on Judgment Day is concerned. Only whether you lived a humble and obedient life before your good Creator through faith in Christ. When, when God brings every deed into judgment, all those other considerations and more are going to fade so far into the background, you won't even be able to see them anymore. I promise you, it won't be anywhere near the forefront of your mind. How freeing to live with this truth. Make this one of those truths that you write on the tablet of your heart. That God will bring every deed into judgment and, and put that truth to use all the time. And think, since God will bring this deed right here, right before me, that I'm about to do, this choice I need to make, whatever, since He will bring it into judgment, what really matters about this most? 
And you know what? If you think that way, a lot of what we get anxious about will fly away. What matters? Do you fear God and keep His commandments? This truth is liberating. You can find rest for your soul right here, Christian. Think about it this way. The wider your view of God's judgment gets, you see it's, oh, it's every deed. Well, then the narrower your focus can be in what you feel you must be doing and that you must be successful at. I just want, you just try and be successful in pleasing God. That's a tremendous blessing. It's, it's freeing. It's, it brings rest. It does, particularly if you know, if you're sure that you will stand on that day before God, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, which you can for sure if you will just trust Him. Now, we learn from this verse the breadth of the judgment. Second, you need to learn from this verse the depth of the judgment. The depth of the judgment. The coming judgment will be as wide and all-encompassing as it could be, and now we will see it's also going to be as deep and searching as it can possibly be. I'm getting this from the middle phrase of the verse. Look again at verse 14. God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing or every hidden thing. So note the repetition of the word every, every deed, every secret. That's how deep and wide it will be. There will be no secrets left on that day. The deepest and darkest secrets people have will be brought out into the full light of God's presence and judgment. In Psalm 90, verse 8 says, You have set our secret sins in the light of your presence. No, no day in all of history or eternity will be full of more shocks and surprises, some wonderful and some terrible. All the secrets that people took with them to the grave are going to come up out of the grave with them when God resurrects their bodies and they stand before His judgment seat. And it will happen with every other person and angel God has made watching. Romans 12, 16 says that according to the gospel, on that day God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. That's in step with the gospel. If, if you're hiding something... It, it's a form of functional unbelief in the gospel. Jesus, judge of secrets, he said in Luke 12, 2, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. And you know who he said that to? And when he said that, he didn't say it to the Pharisees. He said it to his disciples warning them not to become like the Pharisees. He said, Be care, beware of their leaven, their influence, which is hypocrisy. Don't live like a hypocrite because nothing is covered up that will not be revealed. He was warning his disciples about pretending, about play acting, just making an outward show of godliness. And, and there is no hypocrisy or pretense or secret that will be kept under cover. There, there is a firm expiration date on all of that. A date has been set when the jig is up for all pretense because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Acts 17. And of this, God has given assurance by raising Jesus from the dead that Jesus will be the one to do it. You know, these words that Solomon wrote here at the end of Ecclesiastes... It, it should make you think of other words Solomon wrote in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. Now, this, the second half of that proverb is wonderful. It, it tells us there's a way out of that. The whole of Proverbs 28, 13 says... Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find mercy. 
God wants you to stop hiding and to repent openly in view of His mercy. Come to the light and find mercy. In Psalm 32, Solomon's father, King David, wrote about a time when he kept silent and covered up, in a, in a sense, his sin. And it made him miserable, praise the Lord, until he gave that game up. And, and he said in Psalm 32, verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And that psalm is especially beautiful because in verse 1, David worships God for how blessed he is that when, when he did not cover his own sin, God covered it by forgiveness. So verse 1 of Psalm 32 says, How blessed, how happy is the man whose sin is covered. That is covered by God's forgiveness and atonement. But listen, if you try to cover your own sins by secrecy, silence, hiding, hypocrisy, deceit, so, well, Psalm 32 said that that made David groan and it dried up his strength. And Ecclesiastes 12, 14 promises God will, will bring all the hidden and secret things into judgment. Now, here's something else that you need to understand from the Bible about this idea, God judging the secret things. When other Bible verses talk about this, it's not just secret acts that are in view. It's also the secret thoughts and, and motivations that happen in a person's mind and heart why they do the things they do. God will judge every hidden thing, including what goes on in the hidden person of the heart. Not just what people did that was hidden, but what people thought and desired and loved and hated that was hidden, the hidden heart motivations for, for the why behind the deeds. And this, this is taught... Explicitly in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. The, and the Apostle Paul actually says, we need to be careful about judging other people because we can't see what happens in other people's hearts which the Lord will bring to the light when He comes to judge. And only after the Lord brings to light the purposes of the heart and, that, and it's revealed why people did the things that they did, then He will judge with perfect justice. You know, sometimes people talk about this in actually an upside-down way that doesn't square with Scripture, that sometimes people do bad things, but we say, well, but God knows our heart, as if you could do bad things from a good heart. And the Bible says, no, we do bad things because we have a, a bad heart. But so that, that kind of incongruity between your actions and heart is impossible. But there's another kind of incongruity behind your heart and your deeds that is possible that Scripture warns about. That is doing what looks like good deeds, looks like godliness outwardly, but, but not actually for godly, God-centered reasons. They're not good works in God's eyes then because He sees deep. He sees the hidden person of the heart and the purposes people truly have. So, okay, I've talked about this verse. Let me read it. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. Scripture says, do, now, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness. He will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. And when God does that, He will expose whether or not people did what they did because they loved Him and trusted Him and feared Him. Does a person actually care about their whole duty? Do they actually fear Him in the hidden person of their heart? He'll, he'll make it manifest 
whether or not the, the seeds, at least of this, fe- godly fear, which remember uh, Sinclair Ferguson helped define for us last week, it, this indefinable mixture of reverence, fear, pleasure, joy, and awe that fills our hearts when we realize who God is and what He's done for us. Is anything like that part of what motivated a person to keep God's command in this or that instance? Or was it something else that encouraged them to conform their behavior externally to God's Word? In some ways, the judgment will go down deep. Now, no doubt, this is a very sobering and convicting truth to all of us. But it should make us throw ourselves completely onto Christ and to hope more fully in His saving work that when He died for our sins and rose from the dead, because Romans 6 says, if you trust in Jesus, that means you're united to Him in His death. And so you must consider yourselves dead to sin, even heart-level hidden sins in your inner person. Count yourself as dead to those because of what Christ did for you and pursue heart holiness. And, and you must consider yourself, Christian, united to Jesus in His resurrection. And so set free to, to truly live for Him from the heart. And after Romans 6 talks about that, Paul worships God for that in Romans 6, 17. He says, Thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. God's judgment will go that deep, but you know what? His saving work in Christ goes that deep also. It changes us in our hidden persons. And so actually the New Testament sometimes talks about how the the godly fear of the Lord, like the godly love of the Lord that's put in us by the Spirit when we trust in Christ, that, that actually guards us from doing our works in just an external externally godly way. So, for example, in Colossians 3.22, bondservants are told, bondservants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. The parallel passage, Ephesians 6 5 and 6, bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling toward the Lord, with a sincere heart, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. You you consider how great God is. You consider how lavishly gracious He has been to you in Christ. And, and as that adds fuel in you to this, to this adoration of God that, that trembles and esteems and loves Him for this, that ensures your spirituality doesn't become hollow and heartless. It will make sure you don't start living with secret sin because the fear of the Lord, Scripture says, overpowers and cast out other fears, you know, the kinds of fears that would make you want to live in secret sin, like fear of what other people thought, fear of losing continued access to this sinful practice, whatever. The, the, it's not for no purpose that right after Proverbs says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not po- prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will find mercy the very next line says, blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. There's one more important lesson to learn from this last verse about the judgment. To add what the Spirit has told us about the breadth of the judgment, the depth of the judgment. Now lastly, he tells us about the twofold nature of the judgment, the twofold nature of the judgment. And I get this from the last part of the last verse. So let's look at it one more time all the way through now. God will bring every deed into judgment 
with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Don't misunderstand that. Judgment Day is not just going to be about the punishment of evil. It's also about God's gracious rewarding of good. In one scene in the book of Revelation, depicting the end, when when Christ returns to reign and judge, heaven worships by saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power, and you have begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and the time for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and rewarding those who fear your name, both the small and the great. That's Revelation 11, 17 and 18. We should consider more often this twofold nature of God's judgment. It's all over the Bible. 2 Corinthians 5, 10, that Nathan read earlier, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. It's this twofold nature of the judgment that is the ultimate vindication of justice, of God's glory, and it will be to the joy of God's people. So Psalm 58, 10 and 11, it teaches, the Word of God teaches the people of God to worship God about this. Psalm 58, 10 and 11, the righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. And mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there's a God who judges the earth. Now, you need to tie this understanding to what we've seen earlier. So, so first, tie this truth about the twofold nature of the judgment together with, with the first point about the breadth of God's judgment. God will bring every evil deed into judgment, and He will bring every good deed into judgment. God is not unjust to overlook any sin. And he is not unjust to overlook any good work or any love anyone has shown his name or any service to his people. And that's what Hebrews 6, 10 says. Every deed, every good, every evil. This is also why Scripture tells us we don't have to become bitter And we mustn't. And we don't have to seek vengeance for ourselves. And we mustn't. When others sin against us, because we know no one is getting away with anything, no sin, no evil deed will ever go unpunished. It will either be fully punished in hell or on the cross of Christ. This is also why you can, even by the Spirit's power, Have your heart be free, if you trust this, to return good for evil. Because you know God will not overlook any evil perpetrated against you or any good done by you. So you never feel tempted like that's a waste. Tie this understanding of the twofold nature of the judgment also to this prior point about the depth of the judgment. When God brings man into judgment, he will bring every secret, every secret evil to light. And he will also bring every secret good to light. That's that's what Jesus taught us to be motivated by in the Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? This is one of the big antidotes to fake, Pharisee, hypocrite religion godliness, pseudo-godliness. The antidote of genuine, secret, not doing it to be seen, godliness. Matthew chapter 6, our Lord Jesus taught, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward by your Father who is in heaven. 
When you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, go into your, to your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, make it look like you ate a good meal. That your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. God will bring every secret thing into judgment, whether evil or good. 1 Timothy 5, 24 and 25. The sins, I said that fast, 1 Timothy 5, 24 and 25. It says the sins of some people are conspicuous. You know what that word means? It means they're out in the open for everyone to see already. The sins of some people, or the King James says, the sins of some are open beforehand, I think. The sins of some are conspicuous, going before them to the judgment, but the sins of others will appear later. So also good works. Some are conspicuous, but even those that are not cannot remain hidden. God will bring them to light at the end. That Did you catch this, the verse that I read, 1 Corinthians 4, 5, earlier about God bringing to light the purposes of the heart? It says, after God does that, then each one will receive his commendation from God. I didn't say condemnation. I said commendation. Do you know the difference between condemnation and commendation? It's the difference between punishment and praise. God will bring to light the the real, not perfect, but not hypocritical, genuine godliness that really lives in the hidden person of the heart, of the truly saved. And then God will, by His great and lavish grace, commend, reward His people for it. Yes, He's the author of it. He gets all the credit for it. And part of how he wants credit for it is to give us more grace by commending and rewarding us for it, for his work in us. Grace upon grace, upon grace, upon grace. When this happens, when, when, when God brings to light the purposes of the heart, He will show what perfect justice is in a way that sinful humanity doesn't understand and suppresses because he's going to judge with the standard, the pure and perfect standard, that his glory is always the highest good and loving him is always the highest righteousness. His glory is the ultimate measure of morality. And a lot of the hard questions that even believers have about Christianity, that, that's the cornerstone of the answer. God's glory is the highest good and therefore the ultimate measure of morality. That, that is the clearest, brightest, most central dividing line between true good and true evil. There is no deed that can truly be called good before God unless it is done not only in conformity with his word, as far as the external behavior of it, but also done from a heart of faith in God and for the glory of God and out of love for God and in the fear of God, which is all basically the same thing, a heart for God that depends on him and esteems him. And that's why God has to bring to light the hidden purposes of the heart before true justice can really be done and true justice can really be seen. Romans 14, 23 says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If I preach this sermon and it's not from faith, it is sin. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, do for the glory of God. If it's not done for that, it's sin, no matter what it looks like on the outside. Matthew 22, Jesus said, the first and the greatest commandment is to love God with all of the heart. How can any deed be called good if when they did it, they were breaking the first and greatest commandment? 
Ecclesiastes has taught us the whole duty of man is to fear God. Can, can something a person does really be called good if they're failing in their whole duty to God while doing it? The, an, the answer is no, of course. When the purposes of the heart are revealed, you see this, the value of different good works are going to look so different. The sermon that the man preached in part for self-promoting reasons, will be valued so much lower at the judgment than the work of a child who helped to clean up after church from a more pure and sincere heart to please and glorify God because of what he's done in Christ. God judges good deeds very differently than sinful man does, and that's because... He can see the heart, we can't. And that that's because sinful man, right, forgets God and tries to take his place. And, and, and then people try and whitewash that first and highest evil by philanthropy or human kindness, or even devotion to various religious activities. But, but God will judge according to a radically God-centered view of reality and morality, because anything else would just be wrong and false to what's real and true and good and beautiful. And God will not pervert justice. He'll bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. But you know, you need the whole Bible to help you understand exactly what that's going to look like and what that means, or else you might read this, just this, and and live and die at best like a, a humanist, moralist, deist, and, and then be sentenced to the eternal punishment that you would deserve. We also need the whole Bible to help us know what is the great hope that we can have for this day of judgment. And the hope in, in a strange and wonderful twist that we could have never come up with, the hope is actually found in the person who will be seated on the throne of judgment. The man Christ Jesus John chapter 5 says the Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that they would honor Him just as they honor the Father. And Acts 17 says that God has appointed a man, Jesus Christ, by which He will judge the world. 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ Jesus. Matthew 25, it's when the Son of Man, Jesus, comes in His glory, He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations. It, it, sometimes um, more, more liberal theological scholars will look at the, the Sermon on the Mount and say, see, this is the real Jesus. He's, just, he's this great moral, ethical teacher. Well, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that everyone's going to stand before Him as their judge, and He will determine their eternal fate. This man, Jesus Christ, is going to be seated as the divine judge. He is God's Son incarnate, and God the Father wants to honor Him in this. But that should also give you great hope that that the man who will sit in judgment before you is also the man who gave Himself up for you in love. Acts 10, didn't we confess Jesus is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living of the dead and everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness in his name because of how he died by hanging on a tree, cursed of God, and how God raised him on the third day. You need to know the breadth and the depth of what his death accomplished. He died for every sinful deed of his people. The sin of doing things for bad reasons, he died for it. He died for the sin of half-hearted love for God. 
He died for the sin of weak, trembling, little, adoring, little fear of God. He died for the sin of trying to keep sins secret. Flee in faith to this great judge who left his seat of judgment to take our place and be condemned for our crimes and serve the whole sentence and then raise from the dead and say, that's done. What a wonder. What a wonder. Jesus, he, he stands ready to come and judge the world, but he also now stands ready to receive you and forgive you if you'll repent in your heart of your sins against him and you'll put your faith in him and his death, his resurrection, and you'll follow him in, in, as his. Say, I am not my own, I'm his. He, twice over, he made me and he saved me and I wouldn't have it any other way. You're headed for a judgment. Believer, when, when the judge can say about your sins, I know about those sins. I'm very familiar with those. Not, not just because I'm God and I see omnisciently everything, but because I, I have borne those sins in my body on the tree. I suffered for those sins already. I rose. So all your sins, my disciple, are buried and gone as far as this court is concerned. You remember this believer. The man who is the judge was crucified. The hand that holds the gavel has a hole in it. A glorified wound, a beautified scar that bears witness on Judgment Day, that he was pierced and wounded for our transgressions. And on that same basis, the death of Christ, can you be rewarded for your good deeds? And you need to understand this also. Maybe some are confused about this. I would understand if you were. If you know the Bible, because you know the Bible says no one is good. And Jesus said no one is good but God. And, and you know that, that the biblical gospel says no one will be declared righteous before God on the basis of their good deeds. So you think, what, what do our good works have anything to do with this? You, you know that even our very best deeds, when, when put forth in, in the light of God's perfection, can only be exposed as imperfect and in and of themselves as meriting punishment. No deed we have ever done, even after becoming a Christian, has been perfectly good. Not when you consider the purposes of the heart. Who has ever loved God with their whole heart? Who would raise their hand and say that? If, if you would raise your hand and say that, all the mature believers in the room would be like, oh, we need to disciple that one a little further. All of our good deeds are stained by sin. At, at some level. But what if Jesus died for all our sins? Including the sin stains on our good works. Well if, well, if even those sins are washed away, then what do our good works look like then? Pure, good, truly before God. The rewards God will give His servants on Judgment Day and eternally, the commendation... It's actually not ultimately their due, but, but it's grace given in Christ Jesus on account of the death of Jesus, and therefore it will be all for the glory of Jesus, not for us, the deed-doers. Uh, I want to read a, a couple of paragraphs sorry, to you from, from the Westminster Confession of Faith because this explains it so beautifully. It says, We cannot, by our best works, merit pardon of sin or eternal life at the hand of God because of the great difference that is between them and the glory to come, the infinite distance that is between us and God. By our works, we can neither profit Him nor satisfy Him for the debt of our former sins, and even when we have done all we can, we have only done our duty, and we are unprofitable servants, 
And because, so far as our works are good, they proceed from His Spirit, and so far as they are done by us, they are defiled and mixed with much weakness and imperfection, that they cannot endure the severity of God's judgment, notwithstanding, which is a big and fancy word for but, the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works are also accepted in Him, not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable, and unreprovable in God's sight, but that He, looking on them in His Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, even though it's accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. That's good news. In Jesus Christ, then, in Jesus Christ, every single phrase in this last verse of Ecclesiastes becomes for us a reason for hope and joy and boasting in the Lord. Through faith in Jesus, when we learn all of this about God's judgment then, it it actually can increase in us that indefinable mixture of reverence and fear and pleasure and joy and awe when when we think about who God is and what He's done for us. And, And in Jesus... You can join those psalms from the heart that say, The Lord comes to judge. Let the earth rejoice. Father, we rejoice because we are in Christ. And so when you come to judge, it's good news. And with the trees and the mountains and the valleys and all creation, we will Be full of joy and freedom when you come to do what's right. Thank you, God. We cannot thank you enough for what you've given us in Christ and what you have promised to give us in the future, even for all eternity. You are good, good, good. Your grace is more lavish than we understand. So we fear you. We love you. We want to understand better. Help us so we can fear and love you more like you deserve. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.